out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. If only. This is David Eastall, and this is the C86 Show. Welcome once again to another exciting episode. I know, who is going to be the special guest? You might already know from the title of the show. Anyway, I'm going to be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. Always playing the finest in indie pop. This week's special guest is going to be David Bath, the musician and record company executive and the keyboard player with The Teardrop Explodes. And also, um, he founded Zoo Records and also Food Records, uh, the Food Record label, and um, Signing Blur. Plus, he was the subject of their number one hit, Country House. So, I've got that interview, and lots more besides, as well as the usual award-worthy playlist. But anyway, look, I'm going to play some music, because I'm getting very excited. It is going to be an amazing playlist. This is going to be... Um, the teardrops and sleeping gas. Take it away.
Exuberant Sands from The Teardrops, and that was a track titled Sleeping Gas that came from their 1980 album Kilimanjaro. That, um, and that particular song was written by the band, plus Paul Simpson, who was, um, well, basically the Wild Swans, and is still going, and I think has new material, material coming out very soon. Anyway... Hello, this is David Esau, The C86 Show, and this week's special guest is going to be David Baff, all the way from, I don't know where he was actually when I spoke to him, but um, originally from Liverpool, and one of those people who was very much on the scene, so it's a fantastic interview. He says, I'm not biased. Well, I mean, I just asked the question, he had the story, so um, he said, if you want to write and complain, you know, write to him. Anyway, um, so I've got that interview that I want to break up in three or four easy-to-digest little segments, and for those who are always keen to buy interests and compilations, Cherry Red Records, yes, they, who seem to always have them, uh, brought out an album, a compilation last year called Revolutionary Spirit, The Sound of Liverpool from 1976 to 1988, five CD, five CD box set with lots of exciting songs, mostly from bands with very obscure names and silly names, but um, worth tracking down. But anyway, before we start the interview, and um, you can tell the excitement is absolutely building here, I think we're going to play another track. This is going to be Echo and the Bunnymen, and this is um, taken from the album Crocodiles, and this is Stars Are Stars.
And that was Echo and the Bunny Men with a track titled Stars of Stars that came from their 1980 album Crocodiles. You do the maths. It was a long time ago, but still sounding good. Anyway, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show. Um, I could do some admin. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook or Twitter. I know the options there. Um, and probably Instagram as well. Just go to at C86show and uh, that'll be very cool and groovy, especially, um, well, you know, just make it positive and um, nice. Otherwise, don't bother. And also, I've been doing this show for two and a half years and you can find them because I've been archiving them on um, various different platforms, including uh, Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and Mixcloud. So uh, just go to C86show and they are there. Anyway, uh, this is going to be the first part of my interview with David Bath where I've been talking about life, love, poetry, getting older and one's health problems, which is always interesting, especially when you meet somebody um, who's also, you know, beyond the 50. And then um, I was talking about Norwich scene, because that's where I'm from, saying it wasn't great in Norwich for the music scene, really. We had the Farmers Boys. Don't want to knock them, but frankly. Um, and then saying, well, Liverpool did have a lot of bands, as well as Manchester. And um, that was an interesting point, obviously. And this was David's response to that. David, take it away. Yeah, it was a good time to be there. It just seemed to have... Uh, I think a lot of people are just lucky in your life. You just turn up and at the age of 18, Eric's was kicking off and uh, and that whole scene that came from that. And But it was also combined with punk and post-punk. And um, so it was, a, it was a very good time for me. I enjoyed it immensely. You did. And you, you grew up in Merseyside, so you were there. You didn't sort of go there as you um, I grew up in the Wirral. Uh, so if you're a Liverpudlian... Uh, you, I get called the woolly back, um, but effectively it's all part of Merseyside, and um, it was it was as near to Liverpool as some people who live further uh, out on the outskirts of Liverpool. Um, but um, yeah, so me and uh, I was in also in a band called Dalek. I love you, and we had a punk band called Radio Blank that played Eric's a few times, and uh, we played with OMD or what, what the guys who became OMD. Uh, and they were from the Wirral as well. Yes. And are you able to give us a bit of a background? Because obviously Eric's is one of those things that I sort of managed to sort of find out a bit about, but for other people they might not have come across it. But it is, it's up there with the almost the Cavern Club, isn't it? Or the Hacienda. Yeah, it was a phenomenal uh, place. Um, it, I, when the punk thing kicked off, again, it look, looking back now, it seems to be the, the big thing that was happening that year, but it wasn't. It was just a weird cult sort of on the side of, of the enormous thing that was the music business. And there was very few places the bands could play outside of London, but Eric's was one of the very first out, um, outside of London that would, would have all the punk bands and the Pistols played there and the Clash and the Buzzcocks and practically everybody. Um, and so um, I was just turning 18 at the end of uh, 76 and we went to see Stranglers and Elvis Costello and lots of fantastic bands, The Clash, possibly the best. Um, and it was run by a guy called um, Roger Eagle, who'd been a DJ. For, he was just a, a bit of a music nut and was had a really wide range and was really into reggae as well, dub and um and he'd been um, one of the sort of founding DJs of Northern Soul uh, sort of 10 years earlier, I don't know how many years earlier. And he'd ended up in Liverpool and started this club at the same time as Punk kicked off. And he was just very open to it in a sort of John Peel kind of way, even though he'd come from somewhere very different. Um, and he started getting all these bands on and suddenly all the sort of weirdos and people who were into adventurous 
new music would coalesce at this at this venue and um often we go and see someone like the jam and there'd only be 50 60 people there on their first gig there and but we got to know everybody and then we'd start putting together a band to play there and again i was in a band before that i was playing you know pub covers band which is what was the kind of height of your um, ambitions before then, because if you've got a band together, that's all you could play. You'd play. We played working men's clubs and weddings and pubs, just doing covers, Beatles covers, Status Quo covers, Alice Cooper covers, and Stones covers and things. Yes, the and classics. that was what you did. And suddenly we had Eric's where we could, we could, we knew we could play. So you could put a band together literally to play Eric's, and then you try to get a few other gigs at various other places as as things started happening. And a lot of people turned up there. And then, of course, again, I think one of the things that has been lost in the mists of time is that punk was really over quite quickly on one level. It lasted about nine, about a year. Um, and and then everybody else, you know, the people are still becoming punks today. I don't know how many years later, 40 years later. Um, but... It felt like it was all over by the end of 77. And that's when I, I think we packed in our punk band in November or December. No, November, I think it was 77, thinking that was all over. And a lot of the people who'd been into it felt like we've got to do the next thing. And um, and what, there had been a whole year zero where we felt like everything had to be... Um, you couldn't go back to the old ways. You couldn't go back to the old... Things everything had to be stripped down and rebuilt, and that was what the punk aesthetic had left us with. But we wanted to do music that wasn't just and shouting um, or being angry. Um, it, we wanted to do something different that was somehow coming out of that punk thing, and that was led to what is now called post-punk. But bands like the Teardrops and the Bunny Men and Joy Division and a lot of these kind of bands were using the punk uh, uh, rules, not rules is not the right word, but ethics um, uh, in a different way to try and do something a bit more interesting. Yes. And were you, when you were growing up, did you sort of have, you know, the musical ability? I mean, the lessons, because you were a keyboard player and obviously punk kind of gave people a lot of... um, an opportunity or certainly gave people the permission to say, well, I could just about sort of pull this off and bluff it enough to uh, learn it. Or what, I just wondered if you'd come from it, you know, like actually I've already sort of learned the, learned the skills or did you learn them on the job? Well, the funny thing was when we started Zoo and had the Bunnymen and the Teardrops, I'd only really been playing for a couple of years then. Uh, um, um, so this is uh, when I got to the age of 20 or something, I'd be maybe playing for three years. But the but the bunny men the teardrops had literally picked up their instruments and were learning to play for the first time at both bands. And because I'd been in, I think a covers band and uh, and then a punk band and then a post punk band just before them, I was kind of <laughs> almost regarded as a sort of old hand at it. Even though I wasn't particularly great, but I just learned a few of the tricks you learned in those first few times you try it out and how to structure a song and how to you know very basic and how you put an arrangement together on a um but when you're sort of 20 or 21 two or three years doing something seems like an enormous number um 
an enormously long time. Um, I joined uh, big in Japan. Most of them had again learned on the job. Um, and I was a bass player then. I was a bass player in a punk band. And then we'd done Dalek, I Love You, which was, I was playing both bass and keyboards and singing in. And um, it was just a great time for, again, one of the things that punk had given us was a feeling of just go on and try it um, and give it a go and you can cobble anything together that sounds good, that's good enough. And um, and a, a new simplicity as opposed to the sort of prog rock complexity and uh, and skills being so important. But as for being a keyboard player, I'd had a few lessons in my sort of early teens, I think, and um, got to, I think, grade four or something on a piano lesson as much I hated. Um, but then when the, when the keyboard player left the Theatre of Explosive, who I was then managing, um, I just stood in for a few gigs because I knew how to play what he'd been playing, but he was playing it with one hand and I could play it with two hands and it sounded twice as good um, and bigger. Um, and then that's what happened. So I was never a great keyboard player. I was never great anything. I could just do the basics pretty well um, and understood it more than being a really proficient. I think it was... You know, I was good basic player of pretty much anything, yes. but not fantastic at anything. Not quite the Rick Wakeman of the um, Liverpool. No. <laughs> going into sort of, are you a I wish I had been. <laughs> a kind of a muso sort of with a sort of, I don't know. Well, people like Steve Naive, who played with Elvis Costello and the Attractions, had been to music college and done it, the whole thing. And I met a few musicians later on that, and... Who, and I really envy someone with that proficiency, yes. proficiency and a musical knowledge. But at the same time, one of the problems with proficiency is it, it forces, it doesn't force you, but it it can make you do things the way they're normally done because you can do it the proper way or the traditional way or the conventional way. Because when you're not very good, you have to sort of dick around until you find something that's interesting and the interesting and freshness and innovative approach makes up for the lack of skill um, mm. you know you can't suddenly go do a rick waitman or a, a life on mars type keyboard so you have to do something that's got a new sound or a new approach or is doing something more interesting to make up for that yes um well, it's interesting because um, I know with the, the you know the guys from is it Procol Harum, the whitest shade of pale, where they sort of took a mm. classical piece of music and and just kind of layered that on top, which became you know that sort of famous kind of organ motif, you know, mm. which we all sort of love. But obviously, that gives gives people that option if you can go, oh yes, when I did my you know studying on the keyboards, we used to play classical music. I'll be able to put that in there because because talking to a few bands um, and sort of being curious about their sound, especially in the sort of eighties, um, you know, like big. Flame, for instance, um, I remember the guys saying that, well, they were so musically limited because they couldn't play that the sound that they created is all they could do. They couldn't they couldn't do a covers band because they weren't good enough to do other people's numbers. They had to make this rather scratchy sound. But obviously, mm. being a fan, we thought it was quite brilliant. But actually, <laughs> it was very... I know, I think an, an awful lot of people um, um, miss... I mean, I think it's perfectly legitimate. A lot of people are trying to copy things they like, but failing, and in the failure, um, create something fresh and new. Um, and and it, it, people imagine that they're trying to do something fresh and new, when really they were just trying to copy the Beatles or trying to copy you know, David Bowie or trying to copy something. Um, I'm failing. Um, but failing interestingly, um, or failing 
in a new way. Um, and that's one of the advantages of, uh, of um, limitations. And then as you get better and you learn a lot more of the tricks and you know how to do this thing and that thing, and it's very hard not to resort to those tricks. There are so many tricks that you know this works. I mean, that's one of the things I think indie just died to death because everybody would go off to college and learn how to do indie music. And it's very easy to do that indie sound and once you learn all the tricks and how to do it. And whereas we were always having to, you know, reinvent the wheel with each, with each song and, and, and come up with something that sounded half decent um, in a way that we didn't know how to do it. Um, and I think that, and it was very painful. And it was very difficult because often you'd just be at rehearsals thinking, oh God, this just isn't working. This just isn't working. And trying it this way and trying that way and trying a different drum beat and trying a different sound. And, and eventually you get something that sounded pretty good. And, and that was good rather than just plugging in the old guitars and doing the strumming normal set of rules that you know will always sound quite decent, but it just sounds like a, a million other groups. Yeah, indeed, wise words. That's the first part of my interview with David Bath, talking about um, those early days, early years, and all that kind of groovy stuff. Anyway, uh, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show. This is going to be, I'm going to just put in a record because that's the sort of crazy guy I am, um, because you just might be nodding off, hopefully not. Anyway, this is going to be Big in Japan with a track titled... Oh, I don't know, big in Japan, probably. Anyway, the production isn't amazing, but it's still got, it's got energy, it's got the vibe, and that's what we love here.
hmm, a lot of things going on there. That is uh, Big in Japan, uh, with a track also titled Big in Japan. And uh, this is going to be the second part of my interview with David, where I had been talking about the band and about the individuals that were part of it and um, all that kind of stuff. And... Um, what an influential group of people they were. And this was his reply and to that fascinating question that I had, if I don't say so myself. Anyway, David, tell us about Big in Japan. Well, I, yeah, I joined right towards the end. I was in this band, Dalek I Love You, that I'd mentioned, and the, the two other guys in Dalek I Love You, one was still in the sixth form at school and one was at a job as a graphic designer. So by that time, I'd packed in doing this sort of art school course of photography that I found to be rubbish um, and was very bored during the day. And I, um, and I knew these people from afar at Eric's, but they were all too sort of cool and Liverpudly and to, for me to hang out with. Um, but they they just kicked Holly Johnson out of the band for, for being a bit flaky of coming to rehearsals and stuff. And they were advertised for a new bass player and I auditioned and got the job and instantly was dropped right into the middle of the sort of hip set in in liverpool and met a lot of people in liverpool that i'd only seen from afar in eric's and um budgie had met a little bit because our punk band had played with his punk band um, um and he was a, gr- a great great drummer and i was playing bass with him uh, ian Brody, um who went on to be obviously the lightning seeds uh, was a, a great guitarist bill drummond who he and i became partners and still partners to this day uh, in zoo records and zoo music and we became managers and co-producers of the Bunnymen and Teardrops. And um, and Jane Casey, who was the wildest looking woman in the whole of Liverpool, um, was the singer. Um, so it was it was quite a, an exciting thing. It was, in fact, it wasn't quite exciting. It was incredibly exciting. I was 19 at the time, and I thought it was just like being dropped into... I don't know, the, the the most hip scene you can ever imagine it being as a kid and reading about. Um, but Big in Japan, although they had real strengths, um, it was towards the end and they hadn't got a record deal. They auditioned for Stiff Records when I was playing with them in Birmingham and they didn't get that and Bill decided to pack it in. And that's when we formed Zoo Records. Yes. So, I mean, because I always remember hearing, I think it was Jane Casey saying that, you know, talking about the members of the band sort of wearing their, was it neurosis on stage? So was it quite an extreme bunch of people? Because it sounded like it. Um, yes and no. I mean, it was. Uh, um, it was very wild and colourful. It was very Andy Warhol-esque, um, especially Jane. Um, uh, but Bill, uh, I mean, Bill's a, a strange combination of completely mad and completely normal. Um, um and Ian and um, Budgie were just great musicians. Um, and that was the band, really, with me. Um, it was... Um, I was really thrilled, and I loved, I loved, I loved to play the songs. Um, but, uh, it, yeah, it, it didn't quite get anywhere. I always thought it was a stupid name as well, to tell the truth, but there you go. <laughs> yes. The tricky name. So, because obviously, you know, doing lots of these interviews, most people sort of, they get into the band and they do the the one band, which normally, you know, the narrative is, you know, they, they you know, like you were saying, you know, mostly there's thousands of bands that don't go anywhere, but they create a sound that's a little bit more interesting than the, the, the sort of, I don't know, the monkeys meet status quo pub band. And then John Peel would pick it up. He'd give it a play that would give him that sort of 
bounce and then a John Peel session then another and then that would give him the bounce to the album and a bit of a tour around the country and then things would get tricky especially on the second album and if anybody ever did America that seemed to completely finish them off and they'd come back kind of traumatized and hated each other but but you sort of stuck with the musical career which was quite extraordinary um well, I only did that round once with the teardrops, and and it did traumatize me. I mean, you know, it is very, very difficult being in a band. I I don't know if there are any bands out there, you know, or you two just happily get on all the time or something and can do it for def- for years. But uh, it, it is very stressful that um, we did that thing of. We with the teardrops, we we did a couple of total out and out John Peel friendly, you know, wacky indies singles with Sleeping Gas and Bouncing Babies, and then we got uh, a guy from Deaf School who would, who'd produced a guy called Clive Langer, who uh, we knew and who'd produced um, Madness by that time, and we loved the productions of Madness um, to do Treason, which was our third single, I think, and. Um, and that suddenly sounded far more like a, a really good, but more conventional, you know, alternative rock pop song. And um, we were really chuffed with that. And it, it, and it came out and it did well for us on an indie level. It was re, re-released later on after Reward. Um, and then we did When I Dream, which is again an attempt to have a hit, but it was still a bit left field. And, um, and then Reward, uh, which eventually uh, did become a hit for us. Um, but... Um, and then that was basically it, really. We re-released Treason, that was a hit, and um, and then everything started to fall apart to some extent. We did the classic second album, which wasn't quite as uh, honed as the first album, um, although it had its moments of genius, I think. Um, but we didn't follow up with any hits, and, and then we wound it up. Um, and it was, uh, I think... Looking back from a distance of forty odd years, it was traumatizing. It, it, you know, you don't realize it at the time that you 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 kind of on one level get everything you'd ever wanted and or dreamed of or never even dreamed of happening, and then it kind of just falls like sand through your hands, and you're trying desperately to keep it, and it doesn't work, and you're blaming each other foolishly, or um, rather than just relaxing and. Um, and getting on with each other and keeping on plugging away. Um, but this is what happens with bands. Um, yes. it, you know, you're young men and you're daft. <laughs> Did you have a moment where you sort of sat down or some, you know, like, let's let's call it a day? Well, Julian did that. Um, you know, we were all, we were midway through our third album and we were pulling in different directions, he and I, and... Um, and then we'd done a very difficult tour where we did a few dates just for the money because we we owed our manager, a band manager, a load of money and because we'd lost money on a world tour. And it was, it's just hard, again, to explain just the tensions that you have. You're, you're all feeling bad because you're losing money and you owe people money and you're doing things for money that you don't really want to do, but you feel like you have to and they're not working out and you're trying out wild ideas but when you can try out wild ideas when you're kind of nobody it doesn't really matter but then when you kind of got a certain standard and um and you know a bunch of fans who are expecting a certain level you, you and you suddenly try to be 
a bit too experimental adventurous and it doesn't quite work um, as we had with this little bit of a tour that we were being a bit too mad or um, mad is too strong where we just tried to do something that didn't quite work and it was very difficult for us Um, and and then Julian just got a call and said Julian wanted to pack it in and I know that Gary and I it was down to the three of us at the time just felt relieved at that moment but looking back again with many things in your life you kind of just wish you'd maybe taken a breather or something and or and had a big a nice big chat and somehow managed to take out all the tensions but life isn't like that so often you make the big decisions at times when when you are tense and when you are unhappy and and that's what happened um mm. Yeah, because it was kind of, because obviously when you're on the outside looking in, you think everyone must be having a great time. And then, when, yeah. and then occasionally you're in the in crowd or you think you're in the in crowd and you realise, God, it's a nightmare, actually. It's not much fun at all. Whereas on the outside, so obviously us, you know, from looking, especially from the east, looking up to Liverpool, thinking, God, everyone must be just having a great time up there. And then, and then I sort of realised there was also, just going back to Bigham and Joanne, is that right that Julian also got to try to... Um, didn't like the band and tried to get petition to calling them to split up. Oh yeah, but that was it was very that was very light-hearted. I mean, Julian was kind of uh, yes, he did do that. In fact, he formed a band that was dedicated to called the Nova Mob. I think it was dedicated to destroying Big in Japan. But I, I think it was more. I mean, he was friends with all of Big in Japan, and Julian was a big character, although he wasn't kind of on the centre of the scene. He was just a he was a very wacky, colourful, bouncy, friendly guy at that point, uh, and um, everybody just knew it was Julian being Julian, really, um, um, as much as big in japan paid any attention to it i only found out about it later on and just thought the whole thing was very amusing and as did all the members of big in japan it was just i think his view was that we, at that time big in japan was the sort of the super hip in-house band of eric's and julian was just being iconoclastic on a on that little eric's level yes by opposing the, the kings you know yeah. um it just sounded like a very kind of amusing thing. Or could have could have been a very nasty thing. Depends on you know how it came. No, it come. wasn't nasty. It definitely wasn't. It, it, it it's hard to explain its humour. It sounds more uh, more. Uh, it, it was very humorous. I thought. Um, and he did t-shirts, uh, um, Nova Mob t-shirts with a picture of Jane, which I've got. I've still got one of them um, on the on it. And I think it was again just Julian being Julian uh, until. He did a lot of those kind of wacky things uh, until, I think, to some extent, he was forming bands sort of three or four a year, and and they'd just get together and do one gig and split up and form another band with a wacky name. And then I kind of got involved with him and, and Bill and Zoo, and and I was sort of saying, you know, let's do this properly. We do this, and we do this, and we've got to do the next thing. And Julian, I don't know whether... if we had got involved whether he did just carried on doing wacky things for a while and then um and really having a lot of fun and being very creative but never taking it all the way down the line i don't know you never know how these things might work no. out indeed we don't have a crystal ball that is the second part of my interview with david talking about um the liverpool scene and also obviously julian Cope. anyway this is going to um i think we should have some music and this is also a uh 
a tract that came out on Zoo Records in 1979. The maths on that one is far too easy for you. Um, this is Laura and the Chameleons. I think you'll like it. Thank you. 
And that's a track titled Touch that uh, was recorded by Laurie and the Chameleons and came out on Zoo Records in 1979. Do pay attention, I might just test you at the end of the show. And um, also Bill Drummond said in one of his publications when describing that single as fragile, mysterious, beautiful, sexy, it was going to be the future of recording music etc etc anyway this is going to be the second part of my third part of my interview with David uh, where we were talking a bit about um, his next phase which was setting up a record label and having spoken to various people including Claire and Matt from Sarah Records um, they didn't even know what an invoice was and I was just wondering if David and Bill Drummond um, were on the case and knew how it was going to all run and this was David's reply David Tell us, tell us about the recording industry. Completely, and that's absolutely right. I mean, I wouldn't have had a clue. Luckily, Bill is one of these guys who, um, in life, just says we're going to do this and just does it. Um, and Bill was is, is still four and a half years older than me, so I was twenty at the time, and Bill was about twenty-five. And um, and he, we just do things together. And luckily. Um, I was fairly intelligent and practical and he was really, uh, but I've always had a slight negativity about me, whereas Bill is just madly positive. So we somehow balanced each other out. And, um, and Bill at, at the time was also a little bit jaded, I think, with the band thing. Um, Cause when I started managing the teardrops and bunny men, uh, the first few weeks, Bill said, there's no way I'm doing because at that time, all it really meant was hiring vans and helping take equipment. And he said he never wanted to lug another amp into a club again ever in his life. And, um, but yeah, we, we just learned it as we went along. And um, uh, looking back, I think, you know, many times in the history of rock and pop music, it's often those first few years whether as a musician or as a manager or as a label, that you are at your best. Well, I still think that when you don't know how to do something, you do it with a certain freshness and open-mindedness that is often far better than years later when I kind of knew pretty much how to do everything. You just You just know all the things that you can do wrong and you just try and hard to avoid them and really and trying to improve the odds of success when really just trying to do it is, is far more healthy somehow. But it's, but at the same time, most people who do it that way fail. I think, again, there wasn't that many indie labels then. It had been a few that popped up with punk, but it was, it wasn't the thing it became just a few years later. And, Doing it, you'd literally, we go, okay, how do we make a sleeve? How do we make a record? How do we press a record? How do we cut, you know, oh, you have to cut a record. Oh, and how do you sell them? Who do you sell them to? And, and, and how do you get John Peel to play it? And you just work out all these things as you were going along. And um, they all make sense. And it kind of worked out well for doing it that way. Um, I don't know. Who knows? Um, because <laughs> um, obviously you know you'd picked up even though you said you're in your early 20s you you obviously again you know after the the previous experience of big in japan though you said you were at the end and then the teardrops which must have been again kind of quite m- much more of an emotional ride you you sort of went into management of, of kind of 
a couple of bands which were did it feel like a huge responsibility or, or was it something that you kind of fell into accidentally because I'm thinking of Strawberry um, Switchblade and Brilliant I was always an organiser and um, at that time and uh, why don't we do this why don't we do that I can do this we can we do that and and I also figured even by at that early time that you, you tend to get one chance as a, a musician if you're lucky um, the amount of musicians who even have some degree of success and never go on to do anything else uh, other than spend the next 15 years trying to reproduce that, you know, one or two years of success when they were in a band that was on top of the pops a few times. Um, whereas as a manager, you, you can plug away and you can still climb a ladder and get better. And, and, and I was just, I'd also kind of realized that I was fairly good at taking a band and making them a bit better um, and helping them do the right things. And I was fairly opinionated and fairly outgoing and good at convincing people. Um, and that's just what I I've did. But luckily, you know, again, I had to earn a living. I had to make some money. I had to somehow trade in the the bit of bit of status I had, the bit of track record I had into something that would possibly create a career for me. Uh, otherwise, I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. So a life forces you down a certain route sometimes and and you make the best of it. And, yes. But I was that a bit pushy, a bit of an organiser. I, I pissed off a lot of musicians along the way just because I'd be arguing with them, suggesting to do this and arguing with them to do it. Because <laughs> obviously the one thing we haven't mentioned was that in that period there was a huge amount of tension in the country, you know, like unemployment and, and lots of places, especially, you know, Liverpool being sort of almost abandoned by the Tory government and um, Thatcher, mm. the Falklands, and then we had the miners' strike. So during all that, you know, and a lot of bands that I've interviewed were on the dole all clean, doing the job seekers' allowance as well as, you know, drinking barley cup and um, eating TVP, textured vegetable protein. So, um, there was, so there was that side going on, because actually when you look back and you think, God, oh, the music was amazing, you must have all been having a party, you think, actually it was really grim as well, because the country was also very divided between, you know, that production sound that we had of Dire Straits and um, that Trevor Horn production, and then the kind of indie stuff that was happening with, like you said, you know, like Teardrop and then Echo and the Bunny Men, and you had the Smiths that came along. So, so it was kind of, an interesting kind of quite a tense time yeah well I, i'm an out and out mega lefty corbyn's loving uh person these days but i've got to admit rather shamefacedly that um i was completely apolitical then um um because again we i was so immersed in the music scene and one's own life you you don't have anything to compare it with really you just emerge into out of school and into real life and it is what it is when you're young to, to a large extent you don't think well god it was great 20 much better 20 or 30 years earlier or you just don't have anything to compare it with so but also it wasn't that bad on one level in that we could basically sign on and get enough money to survive on um and a flat paid for in liverpool in those days while trying to get a music career going, which is why the whole British music business survived in those days. I mean, now the problem is, I think, with acting and music, is you kind of have to be middle class and have a family who can support you to do those things. Whereas in those days, you could just sign on and, and do it and not tell anybody that you were 
putting a record label together. And so, you know, for the first year, we were probably signed, keeping our head above water just by getting the dough. Yes. Um, but also, um, what we were doing then was very apolitical. I mean, there was a sort of... Um, there was an escapist element to it, I think, that we weren't, we weren't Billy Bragg, much as I admire Billy Bragg or, or, or the specials or anything like that. The Redskins? Wasn't, <laughs> we we love the Redskins, didn't we? Yeah, sorry. There, there wasn't any attempt. And somehow I've got to say that, well, I, I kind of really yearn for having something that is a bit more... You know, there is doing a, some great blowing in the wind type songs for this era. But music doesn't generally work like that. I think most people go to music to take them out of the world, really, rather than uh, to replay the news app. Um, and we were, we, 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 I mean, we were really into smoking dope and dropping acid. And so a lot of the music kind of came from that perspective as well. And the Bunny Men, although they weren't as much into that, all that, um, were, um, it was music that just kind of went out into outer space rather than, than really was rooted in the streets or, or, or the, 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 the hard knock society that was going on there. Um, that just seemed to be what music was about um, at that point. Um, I mean, also, I think punk had had an element of that, and there was a reaction to punk um, that 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 gritty political thing was last year's thing or two years ago thing, and we were in going somewhere different. And um, um, yeah, I mean, the same with Joy Division. I think. On one level, you can say, well, it is all gritty, dark Manchester, but it's much more about a psychic thing, about a, a, a mad, wild, weird place than it is about, you know, uh, signing on under dole or anything um, or finding it hard to get a job. I mean, even the Smiths, who are supposedly about that, I, I think are, um, much as Morrissey seems to have let us all down lately, I, I was an enormous fan of the Smiths. And... Um, um, and it was it was kind of escapist music. It was kind of music that made you live in a world of 60s British movies and somehow a romantic escape from, even though it was a romantic, a romantic escape from from the grittiness of, of Manchester. Um, but anyway. Yes, well, I suppose, uh, yes, the kitchen sink drama. I think it looked romantic because you didn't live there, but during the 80s we were all sort of watching films like, I don't know, Betty Blue and a razor head and um, getting slightly... I suppose it was escapism because obviously Betty Blue was set in France and we all slightly fell in love with the imagery and the sort of cool jazz soundtrack mm. in that period. And not to mention, you know, Aliens and Apocalypse Now and Alien and all these kind of movies. And, um, and um, you know, I, I was really into Talking Heads and Patti Smith at the time and they didn't feel like they were... I don't know. It, 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 there's always some kind of complicated relationship between reality and art, and uh, it's rarely an agitprop relationship. Um, with, much as I think there is, I'd like to have more 
music that somehow was saying something about the difficulties of the world right now. Somehow music isn't that great at doing that. Um, I don't know why. Um, hang on, I think my wife's just come in the door, so wait, I'll just explain to her I'm doing an interview. I know, barking dogs and interruptions. Anyway, we're going to pause it there, have some more music, and then the last part of the interview. But this is going to be um, taken from his uh, musical collaboration, this is David Bath, um, Dalek, I Love You. And yes, again, very futuristic sound. We love it.
Can you Adam and Eve it? That was 1980 in the track. Um, Dalek, I love you. And there you go. That was uh, David Bath. And also, and Alan Gill from the ashes of two former bands, Mr. McKenzie and also Radio Blank. Anyway, this is David Eastall, the C86 show. If you, um, God, shall I tell you my contact details? No, you'll just say, you're sounding desperate, David. Just leave it. Just get the next bit. Anyway, this is the next bit of the interview where, um, after the dog and the interruptions, I started talking about his next phase, which was beginning Food Records. And my God, that slightly married the world of C86 with Britpop. And, um, and obviously fame, fortune and an awful lot of money and also being um, sort of immortalised in the track by Blur, Country House. Anyway, David, tell us all about Food Records, please. Yeah, um, uh, uh, well, uh, yes and no. Yeah, we did, uh, we did, we did do very well and signed Blur and, and Jesus Jones, who were doing incredibly well for their second album, they sold a couple of million worldwide. Um and and then basically, uh, again, going back to what I said earlier, I wish I'd just taken a bit of a holiday for three months. I think it was burnt out. Um, again, we had a real problem with the second Blur album and the third Jesus Jones album because suddenly the only alternative rock that was getting played on the radio and getting anywhere was grunge from America. And I just felt like, I wanted to move on and do something differently. And unfortunately, I, I sold the label um, um, just before Blur made it mega. Um, I mean, the last album we did was Park Life, and that did great. And luckily, I had royalties on the rest of their stuff, so um, it was pretty lucrative for me. Um, but um, yeah, it was probably a mistake, and uh, I kind of wish I think I'd taken you know a couple of months holiday and come back a bit refreshed. I just think I'd been at it by them for about so what was that? Uh, you know about sixteen, seventeen years where you're just basically trying very hard to earn a living every week for the for the whole time, and um, it just wears me down. And I, I was, I think, looking back, I was burnt out. But at the time, I felt like I was had enough of it. I mean, also by then I was, hang on, what age was I being? About 36, um, 35. And I, I, one of the things that I think is difficult about music is when you're young, you really do feel it and love it and believe in it. And it, it's, it's your whole world and, and you listen to everything and you listen to everything for fun and, and you care passionately about this and that and then as you grow up a you find it becomes a smaller and smaller part of your life as you have kids and have a family and grow older and more interested in books and at the time i was more interested in radio four than radio one and also you just not quite don't have the same feelings don't have the same instincts anymore and um and i felt like it wasn't something that I wanted to do anymore. Um, um, so I, I packed it in about 84, then came back about a year late and worked for Sony for three and a half years and then packed it in for good in 99. So I haven't really done it properly since in this century. Yes. And obviously, you know, I suppose you must get bored of this, but, you you know, because I know the Smiths did, a, or Morrissey did that song, Frankly, Mr. Shankly, about... Rough Trade owner, who I can't remember now, but um, yes, Jeff here. Travis. Yeah, and then you obviously had a song by Damon written about you as well, which must have made you smile or not. Yeah, I, I'm incredibly flattered and pleased about that record. Uh, 
not many people will uh, have a number one song written about them, a fairly famous number one song. Um, and um, yeah, I think it's a fairly, you know, accurate portrait of me. Um, and um, I like it. Um, I was sort of um, feeling, you know, it, it, it kind of captures professional cynic who's like, whose heart isn't in it, who's gotten very tired of living life to the limit or something like that. And uh, um, and that's where I was at. Um, um, so it, that's good. I like that. Oh, good. <laughs> I, God, I was very nervous about saying that. Because when you finished, you, the last band was Cooler Shaker. Was that? Did you feel at the end of the day that was kind of your Ziggy Stardust? You're just going to quit? You thought, this isn't... Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, again, to be absolutely honest, I packed in in 84, had a year, moved out to the house in the country with my family, um, felt it a bit of a loss and a moment of weakness because a lot of people with the blur becoming massive, a lot of people were offering me big jobs for a lot of money. And I succumbed to that and went back in. And um, I really never felt like I did a good job. Cooler show guy inherited. I just helped finish off the album and put the record songs out and it happened to be a big success so that was good um but i basically the time at sony was a bit of a failure um i i look back on it and i did get paid in an awful lot of money to do it um but um, i don't think it was i think i i wasn't any good anymore and um so um i packed it in really um um and i you know the problem is with the music business is it's like everything in life it's a double edged sword um it, you do what you absolutely loved as a teenager and then suddenly find that you're married to a career that you don't love anymore but and you're only used to doing something you love and you're inspired by and uh enamored by and you're not uh, you know it's one of the lucky things for people who end up doing jobs that they don't love is they just do it. You know, that's their life. You do a job from nine to five, five days a week, and then you go off and do the things you love doing. Um, but when you've always been doing things you love and excite you and inspire you and drive your creativity to suddenly find you don't love them and you're not inspired or excited anymore. Um, it leaves a bit of a hole, a bit of a gap and, uh, you can't do it anymore on any other basis because that's the way you've created yourself. Yes. Um, you can only do things that inspire and excite you. Um, you can't do a normal job, but most people end up getting stuck in it. And some people do quite well. Some people have lots of people have lots of different attitudes. Some people have a very professional attitude, and to their to their sixties can be still managing or doing press or doing marketing or whatever, and they really enjoy it. Or I don't know. I don't think I could have done that. Um, well, no, I couldn't. Luckily, I just managed to make enough money that I don't have to. No, and it's quite tricky because I always, I always ask, you know, what would you say to your eighteen-year-old self? But because your career sort of it, it sort of bounced around so much, so what what would you what would you impart on an eighteen-year-old you? Well, it, it, it's one of my fantasies. I often think, what would you do if you could go back to your teenage years? And I wouldn't probably go into music business. I'd probably go into at the age of eighteen. I went off and after my sixth form and did an interview at the Polytechnic of Central London for a film course, a film degree. And I got offered a place on it, which I turned down because I was playing in bands at the time. And I actually think 
I'd like if I was going to ruin my life again, I'd go and do, do that film course at the in the central London. Yes, that's quite. Yes, that's it. Most people say, "Don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Don't take drugs. Don't and don't be in the band." <laughs> no, I, you know, there's lots of stupid things I did over the years, you know, hundreds of things trying to, um, but you know. <clears throat> the daft things come from the same place that the, the good things come from. Often, you yeah. can't separate the two. And you've, you know, you've worked with so many people, and and they've all, not all, but quite a lot, have gone on and done incredible things. Do you sort of look back and think, God, oh, that was slightly boggling? You know, that that all those different characters. And do you sort of keep in touch with many of them, and occasionally? Uh, yeah, most of them. I mean, not on a day to day level anymore. Just on a now and again basis, and um. It's strange. I mean, Damon is probably the most mega famous and with gorillas and everything. And he's the person I think, you know, admire the most of all those people who went on to do incredible things. I think he's an incredibly great musician. And what they did with gorillas was as good as what he did with Blur. And uh, I have enormous admiration for him. But there's lots of other people, and there's always the ones that got away and the bands that you never quite got it right with, the, the crazy heads and the voice of the beehives and the strawberry switchblades that you kind of just think, oh, if I'd just done this then or just done that then or we just got that right, it could have been all so different. And I mean, that's also one of the things that when somebody goes back over a career, you just look at the high spots and you don't realise, even though I think I had a very high strike rate, as they say, um, that uh, you know, at, uh, one in my, three of my, the bands I was involved with did, you know, had hits and stuff. But there's still all the ones that you thought were really good, but we never quite got it together on. And uh, and that's quite, it was quite heartbreaking. It, it is emotionally draining for you that people like Crazy Head, who I don't know if you ever come across, it, were a great band. And uh, and at times they did gigs, and you just thought this is the best rock and roll band on the planet. But they were a bit ugly bunch of fuckers and they they really didn't uh, you know, fit into uh, what was currently happening um, and um, it, we never got it away and the, the things like that are great regrets for me. Yes, and with, with you know, Zoo Records, did you sort of keep the publishing and the and the rights to it? Yeah, that's the thing that earns us most money these days, the publishing. Yeah, we, we uh, do very well out of that, thank you very much. Fantastic, because most people, you know, go, mm, we don't own the music. But obviously, that must be quite a, a nice thing to keep. And also, there was one fantastic band that you also worked with. Was, is it Laura and the Chameleon, Chameleons? Well, th- that was just Bill and I's little side project. Bill came to me one day with a chord sequence and the idea for Touch. And I was really into electronic music at the time. And uh, I thought Kraftwerk's Man Machine was the greatest record ever. Um, at the time, and um, we we did touch and we put it out, and uh, with Laurie, it was just a cute girl we knew from Eric's, um, and we thought she looked great, and um, we just got her to talk over the song, and then Sire Records picked it up, and we did a follow-up which I love called the Lonely Spy, and we had this concept of just doing sort of story songs. We thought we loved story songs that were sort of backrack, Shangri Laws sort of relic of the early sixties. And um, but then suddenly we found ourselves too busy with the teardrops and bunny men as they kind of got going to to do any more. And uh, that's something I wish we'd done more of. Yes, 
And when you see, because obviously Julian's still doing things, and so is the bunny men, do you think, wow, guys, you you know, this is now 35 plus years, isn't it? Nearly 30. Yeah. I mean, are you amazed to still see them out there doing it? Um, yeah, I mean, but then I'm sure you're amazed by your life. Everybody's amazed. You know, getting to 60 and still feeling like you're an 18-year-old who's trying to figure it out inside is an amazement to everybody. Um, and what happens to everybody? People get married and have kids and have jobs and manage to sustain a life, um, which at one point all looked like something none of us could get together. Um, it, it's, you know, the enormous complexity and mind-bogglingness of life is as nothing is makes anything to do with pop music small in comparison i think uh um yeah yes it is amazing on the level but the, the most excited i ever was was when reward got into the top 10 and i don't know and i appeared on top of the pops that did all those loads and i don't know if life will ever get more exciting than that that is probably, it is, it is the most. And obviously John Peel probably played it as well. And that's always quite oh, I don't know if he played it or but he certainly played our early records, and that was very exciting at the time. But at a certain point, things peak, um, life peaks, and I don't know, maybe playing pool with David with Paul McCartney while we were doing uh, the second album, because we were in the same studio as Paul McCartney. That was certainly an exciting thing because being a Beatles nut from young um, I don't know you know life is complicated you can never figure it out and you spend decades after things happen trying to work out what the hell they were and what the hell they meant and what the hell it all meant <laughs> work it out. yes this is true isn't it we'll put that on our gravestones if you want I could use that yeah. <laughs> what the hell was it all about <laughs> what happened I don't know and that is the last part of my interview with David Baff. A huge thank you for giving me the time for that interview. Um, much appreciated. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. Yes, you can contact me via Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86 Show. I will be there. I normally reply-ish. Perhaps I do, perhaps I don't. Keep it positive, keep it groovy, keep it nice. Otherwise, go and see your therapist. And all the shows have been um, archived. You can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and Mixcloud. I know, two and a half years, probably three years worth of quality chat. There you go. Anyway, we're going to leave you with some more bouncy sounds. This is going to be The Teardrops. And um, yes, you've guessed it, treason. Take it away. (laughs) 